0: An Altar on the Village Green From Book One of The Chained God Written by Nathan Hall Narration, Music, and Sound Design by Alex Schiffer Episode Six MURDER AT MARATH'S END The hand sticking out of the snow had only two fingers left. Much of the body had been mauled as if by a mountain cat, just as the villagers had said. But this hadn't been the only lethal mauling over the last week. Four people were dead or missing, and in any case, Corn wouldn't have been sent from the church for a rabid animal, no matter how vicious. Snow bit through the wool of Corrin's pants as he knelt closer to the body. Carefully, he smoothed some of the loose frost away with a gloved hand. Along one side of the victim's face, long claw marks tore away skin and muscle to expose skull. Teeth had torn out the throat. Yes, a wild beast, surely. But along their wrists and ankles were burns, as if from a rope. Could a wild beast bind its victims before mauling? Whatever had happened to this woman, someone in the village was responsible. Korn had expected many things. He'd not only heard, but had assisted in reciting tales of the lances and the fallen lands to the public. Monsters of fire or blood he could deal with. A town full of madmen? No problem. He'd become one of the more renowned swordsmen in the church, which was to say, the world, and for a reason. But some monster, pretending to be a person, hiding in plain sight? His god should have sent town, Corrin was keenly aware of his guides waiting on the road behind him. As he'd examined the body, he kept an ear bent for the crunches of their feet in the snow, waiting for one to get too close. Ready to turn, draw and slash in one smooth motion. If one of the two who had led him to the body had done so to catch him alone and by surprise, it would only mean he wouldn't need Taum's deductions to find the killer. Standing, he brushed snow from his legs. I've seen all there is to see here. The way down from the slopes was a slow, careful picking. Snow and ice made footing uncertain, and a slip could even mean tumbling to the bottom. Even without that, the climb would be steep on a bare dirt path. How big would a person need to be to carry a body up this path? tall and broad for a man, or remarkably so for a woman. Though squashed between the two kingdoms, the people of Marath's End had more of their stature in common with Lador than Anissa, a few pale faces or broad shoulders among them. Perhaps it would prove simple to find the killer, after all. But then, what if there were more than one killer? Two would make quick work of moving a body even if they were slight, and even if the hill was steep. Just about any two adults in this whole damn town could be responsible. The thought made him miss a step. His foot slid, and he cursed as his arms swung wildly in an effort to regain balance. "'You all right?' Corn frowned at having his thoughts disrupted. He let the expression take in the woman who'd spoken." Bitter, he thought he heard her say. She was not one of the few exceptions to the slight build and tanned skin common to Lidore. Fine, why? You slipped there. Ears burning, he opened his mouth to ask if she had never slipped on ice before. Instead, he found himself asking, This your first real snow? I heard as much coming into town. If Bita was surprised at his change of topic, she didn't show it. Sure, we've had some frost, but this is the first ankle we've had all year. Why do you ask? Did your listener say the snow was coming? The man, Anarim, particularly short, squat, and heavy with paunch, seemed to tire of pretending his attention was elsewhere. She didn't have the chance to say one word or another. You just met our listener, er, Paige will be fine. Corin remembered the admonition against revealing his true purpose. So no one knew the snows were coming, except perhaps the dead woman and the killer. What are you thinking? Bitta asked. Knowledge was there just out of reach. Again, he wished that Taum had been sent here rather than himself. Taum would have seen the body, and declared the killer instead of fumbling for hints and half-remembered lessons. Korn considered holding his thoughts to himself. Even if one or both of these two were killers, it was best not to let on that he suspected until he had to. Neither posed a threat. The body was just off the path. The path itself is well worn. I'd assume you'd take it into the woods to hunt, at the very least. So the body would have been discovered right away, if it hadn't been for the snow. It seems careless. But if the killer knew the body would be covered... arm scratched a patchy beard that might have belonged to a goat, but Bitus sucked in a breath. We didn't find her until we called a search for Toralt. Do you even know how long she's been dead? How long she's been missing? The man finally seemed to get it. Kiarin kept to herself when she wasn't telling what she'd heard. Said it helped her concentrate. It wasn't unusual if no one heard from her for days at a time. The others? Who were they? When did they go missing? The ground had evened out beneath them. The snow packed into a serviceable road. Similarly, Koran's footing in this mystery was growing more certain. He quickened his steps, catching up to, and then overtaking his guides. Deja, Umat, and Toralt, Anarm said bitta understood corin's question better a farmer a thatcher's husband and the smith's apprentice in that order no the man's breath was short from their quick pace his voice called out from behind corin umat the husband went missing first or we thought so at least what does this have to do with anything because, Pit explained patiently, sherith has gone all day, so Umat's home by himself a lot. And then we thought Deidre had gone back to her farm, until her horse wandered back into town, dragging her behind. Her voice broke at the end. Pain, grief, guilt. If you're saying the killer is hiding bodies on purpose only taking people who won't be missed. Then what about Torald? Master Glem was looking for him within the hour, and the whole town was in an uproar before noon. He... What was left of him got thrown down a well, Bitta said. Again, that sadness. How does that meet your theory, Paige? Anarm was huffing. Corin didn't slow. Ahead, the town lay silent, only a single large plume of chimney smoke rising from its center. I would wager that the apprentice disappeared shortly after the farmer. He didn't wait for Bittis confirmation. If the killer waited a week between Listener and Thatcher's husband, they waited three days before the farmer. Corrin snapped his fingers, once and again, and again more quickly, and yet faster. As the gaps grow shorter, less effort is being taken to hide the crime. Soon, whatever it was would be slaughtering them in the light of noonday. What does this mean? The man was falling further behind. Bitta's steps slowed to allow him to catch up. Reluctantly, Corin stopped and turned. How long ago was the boy found? Hours? A day? Someone has likely gone missing in the time we were away from the village. Anarm's hands were on his knees, and he was panting. Bitta's head turned, as she seemed to realize for the first time that the village was too quiet, too empty. Animals wandered without minders, pens left open, baskets and buckets abandoned. The man was too busy trying to breathe to notice. Where are the others? Petya asked, as though Corin might know. Her voice trembled with the first note of fear Corin had heard from her. They are probably fine, he said, though at least one more was likely in the killer's grasp at the very moment. You said the other bodies are nearby. Corin gestured for Bitta to hold the lantern closer. In the dark cold of the basement, the bodies looked less like the remains of people and more like random bits of meat and bone held together with what remained of their clothing. Deidre, at least, looked like she might have been alive at one point, though she was missing a leg and both arms, and her face had mostly been stripped away by either the creature's teeth or by the dragging she had endured. The boy, though, mostly broken bones stuck together with the tack of dried blood. Some of his injuries had come from the tumble into the well but others had been made by claw and teeth, by inhuman strength and indescribable savagery. What little was left of the boy showed no signs of having been restrained, but based on the brute strength that caused the injuries, it wouldn't have been needed. As Corrin had suspected, the murders had grown more vicious as time went on, as if As the strength of the killer grew, so did desire, hunger, anger. At a certain point, the beast didn't care to stop, didn't care if the body was found. Soon, it wouldn't care to wait, wouldn't care if it was caught in the act. Soon, it would be strong enough and hungry enough to devour the town whole. You're different than I expected. The hand Bitta wasn't using to direct the lantern was plugging her nose, and Corin didn't blame her. The cold had kept them from rot for the most part, but they still stank of death. The other villager had refused to come anywhere near the bodies, had insisted on finding the rest of the villagers. If things were escalating as quickly as Corin thought, he was already dead. Different how? Corin asked, examining one particularly nasty break that split the boy's thigh. You're quiet. Rude, you mean? I had expected someone from the church to kind of care about the village. Was that supposed to shame him? He turned to meet her stare, and after a moment, Her eyes dropped to the bodies. It's not my job to be kind. It's my job to put an end to this. You mean to catch the killer? The poor fool still thought a person had done this. Of course. She forced a smile. Good. Guess there'll be time to be nice to each other once this is over. A weaker person might have felt pity. For her. For the victims of this monster. For the town as a whole. Corrin turned for the stairs leading up to the cellar door. It was mostly over now. Soon he could confront the creature. If any questions remained after that, the answers wouldn't matter. Even Town might not have done better. Corrin reminded himself not to smile. How do you think it's getting them alone? Pausing with the door half open, Corrin considered. Do you folk trust each other? We did. For a moment, Corrin said nothing, climbing up and out. After she'd followed, he closed the corpses back into darkness. Only then did the woman remember the lantern she had borrowed from the cellar. Without thought, Corin took it from her. Why had he taken it? Something like a niche, like a word he couldn't remember, like entering a room but forgetting the reason why. You doubt the later victims could be easily persuaded or easily fooled once their friends started to go missing. Corald wouldn't go anywhere without asking Glem first, and with his leg, it took a lot for Uma to get out of the house. Bitta made a small sign against her own leg, above the knee, and yet there was no reason to think that they were forced. Not far ahead, smoke rose from the single spire of the church above the rooftops of shops. Master Glem said he only turned his back long enough to get the forge hot, and the boy was gone. He didn't hear a cry out. Her voice was thick as syrup with emotion. So thick the word struggled to escape. Umat didn't leave his peg and crutch behind. No blood in either case, nothing broken. The Thatcher came home to an unlocked door. She thought he'd left her at first, except no one had seen him since. She opened her mouth to go on, but she must have noticed Corin's impatience, because she swallowed her words. Corin had never liked puzzles. He didn't like them now, when it was unclear whether the puzzle meant nothing or meant everything. A threat of family, then. Maybe, but Deidre didn't have family left after the fever two years back and was hardly friendly with the town beyond trading. Though he didn't say as much, it didn't feel right to him either. As they turned onto the town square, the sloped thatch of the church's roof, angled so severely that snows had tumbled right off the sides, grew a stout, square shape beneath a wooden building with a single set of double doors, like the doors to a barn at its front. The spire was topped by the hideous figure of a monster, impaled on a spike that resembled one of the Chained God's anchors. While only a crude carving, the monster was twisted in agony, its claws tearing at its wound. If only it were so easy Bitta started toward the church doors, which had been flung wide. Within, Corin could see dozens of forms huddled around the central fire. Was one of those gathered villagers the killer? The monster? Or was it lurking somewhere outside, waiting for strangers or strays? As if she had the same thought, Bita hesitated, turning toward Corin. I don't want to, but we're going to have to ask them questions, aren't we? Hard questions. If we are to find which of them is the killer, yes. Corin hadn't sped, as Bitta had on the approach, but he hadn't stopped when she did either. He passed her, looking into the candlelit dimness of the church. It really was a single large room, mostly bare, but for some shelves lined with dusty tomes along the walls and backless benches. Its floor was even packed dirt. Its high square windows, mere holes cut into the walls, were too small and too sparse to let in much light. There was no horror to be found inside the church. Not that he could tell at a glance, anyway. Faces were soot-streaked from sitting close enough to stay warm, but the church doors remained open and welcome despite the cold. At the far end of the sanctuary, an anchor had broken through the altar, almost reminiscent of that sitting above his god back home. Somewhere inside, it was too dark to see just where a child cried. He would have to ask questions, and continue asking them until he received answers. He would have to keep those answers in mind as he repeated this process again and again, until one story clashed with another, until there were enough such clashes to call one person a liar. It would take hours days and all the while the creature grew stronger found the few who couldn't or wouldn't gather here and fed every hour he couldn't find the killer was a failure every day a humiliation puzzles he'd always been one to force pieces into place it didn't matter if he couldn't solve the puzzle if no one else could either. A thought rose again in his mind, no longer half-formed, no longer muffled. His breath escaped in a rush. What is it, Paige? He hardly heard. It was so simple, so elegant. Paige? Her hand on his shoulder drew his attention. When he met her eyes, she took a step back. How had he not thought of it before? The church, a single room, with a single set of doors. I'm not a page. Her mouth opened, but the question died on her lips. He rode over her confusion. That's the mistake I was making before. I wasn't sent here to save you. Bitta said nothing. By her look, she thought he was the monster who had been killing her village. The roof, sloped, empty of snow. You're all dead already. What are you... Her fear became horror, became hurt, as though he had betrayed her. Her head started a slow shake, a weak denial. The entire town gathered inside. I'm a lance. It's not my job to save you, you see. It's my job to find the source of this madness, to destroy it at any cost. The lantern leaving his hands was like a half-remembered word slipping from relieved lips like remembered purpose. It flew in a smooth arc up onto the roof, smashing solidly against the spire. For a moment, oil glittered in the cold sunlight, and then fire bit against straw and tar. Bitter turned to the doors, her mouth opened to shout warning. Trusting Bitter, hopeful Bitter, kind-hearted, Corin's blade was free, its sigh a sound of relief, as profound as Corin's own. It carved through Bita as easily as it would a training dummy. With his kick, her falling body tumbled into the sanctuary. Just as the people turned toward the disturbance, he swung the large doors shut. His sword lodged deep into the crevice between the doors pinning them into place. He'd wasted so much time. Tom town would have seen this right away. It was such a simple solution, after all. If the monster lurked inside the church, in the skin of one of the townsfolk, his mission would be finished in moments. If the monster waited in a house, or in the woods, he could hunt it without distractions. He could burn every house in the village, burn the very forest until the beast died. Sounds of confusion, alarm, and finally panic. Fists pounded on the doors, and then shoulders, but the sword held it tight. At first, the screams were human. But quickly, they grew to those of animals. Quickly, they grew to something unearthly. Smoke billowed from windows too high and too small to climb out. Poured from beneath the doors, tasting of charred wood and seared meat. The creature and the anchor atop the spire were wreathed in flame. And then, with a crack like the sky breaking, They fell through the roof, into the conflagration. After a while, the only sound was the roar and snap of the fire. Something else flooded from beneath the door, too dark even for soot. The same wind that guided the smoke northward seemed to twist for this darkness, sweeping it over and onto Corin. It blanketed his skin and hair. It stabbed through his eyes. He breathed, and it clotted in his lungs. He swallowed, and it swelled in his stomach. He consumed it, and it consumed him. Like cold fire. Like being skinned one hair's width at a time. Like a lover's caress against the very core of his being when he returned to himself, he was on his knees. His entire body stung, like fingers waking up. The darkness had gone. Had that been it? Had he succeeded? How would he know? He pushed himself onto his feet, and moved to retrieve the blade from where it still wedged the charred door closed. His hand had closed around the hilt, still cool despite the fire, when motion at the corner of his eye drew his attention. A skinny child with wild brown hair and active grey-green eyes stood at the edge of the courtyard, his hands fidgeting on a dirty but well-cut tunic. Those eyes flicked from Corin to the sword to the burning church but when they returned to the lance, the child didn't look scared. Please, the child said. My dad needs help. He's been hurt. The words of a panicked child were flattened and hollow. The youth watched him closely for a reaction. Memory flitted through Korin. Long hours and days as a child spent reciting the tales in front of a mirror, practicing a smile here, practicing fear there, practicing until he could make an audience hold their breath or laugh, cheer or weep. Pretending emotion had come easily to him. This child was no good at pretending. Corin nodded, jerking the sword free. The door creaked outward, bursting from its hinges. Smoke billowed out, almost thick enough to conceal the charred remains that tumbled out. The child viewed the bodies with no more fear than he had for the fire. Lead the way, Corin said, not bothering to sheathe his blade. The child led. Without the everyday human noises, the town was eerie in its quiet. Chickens clucked, sheep baaed. Horses neigh, pleading for sustenance, for guidance, for protection. Ignorant that it would never come, Corin licked lips dry, and almost sticky, and absent-mindedly wiped soot onto his sleeve. The cold felt deeper, more solid, after the heat of the fire. They stopped along the outskirts of the village. At a single-story house, not much different than the one that had held the remains of the creature's victims. The cellar door looked long disused, chained and blocked by stacks of firewood. This way. The child motioned toward the front door of the house. Inside, the house was dim-lit only by sunlight from a few unshuttered windows. The house was even quieter than the world outside. All but for a sound that Corrin could make no sense of, low and wet dragging. Whatever it was, rose from the depths of the house. The child led him closer to the sound, never hesitating, until they reached the kitchen and the stairs leading down to the chained-off cellar. He's down there. As if to punctuate the statement, a pained moan rattled up the narrow stairs. Corrin considered forcing the boy down first, but even if the boy was laying a trap for him, even if the trap managed to kill him, Corrin would only go back to the anchor. And now he knew where the monster hid. Slowly, he descended into the dark of the cellar, a weak flickering hit the wall at the turn of the hallway down the stairs. Perhaps from a candle or two. Again, the wet dragging. Again the moan. And now, something else. A smell as sharp as copper. Corrin rounded the turn, soared out in front of him, prepared for anything. No! The boy pushed past to charge down the remaining stairs. But a handful of steps into the cellar, he stumbled to a stop. Halfway into the room, the walls and floor grew slick and bloody, marked by claws. But the blood didn't seem to be from victims. Further back, blood thickened and clotted. And then, like creeping vines... Tendrils of meat clung to the stones, muscle and tendon, skin and fat and bone, all wound in senseless piles, higher and more dense until corn couldn't see the room beyond. It seemed to grow from the very stones. From the center of that mass sprouted a being that had little in common with man or beast. If Corrin had stitched together his last hundred meals, it would have better resembled a natural creature. Rather than a head, the creature had a dozen eyeballs on stalks or bulging from the very fabric of its body. Instead of jaws, it had hundreds of sharp teeth and a jagged line along its front, each anchored with individual muscles It had three stubby, almost feet, and one monstrous, multi-jointed arm ending in a half-dozen giant claws. That giant arm had curled tight around the form of a man, tall and broad enough to carry bodies. Those teeth peeled open as the man was drawn close. Inside the creature's clutches, the man writhed from where Corin stood, he could see the candlelight flicker off the profile of a bearded face. Lines of fear and disgust and pain smoothed away like a sheet's wrinkles beneath a servant's deft hand. No, you promised. The outrage of the boy's charge had faded, and he stood with his fingers clenched on his tunic as the creature's teeth curled inward in a sickening procession. The wet, cracking sounds of the creature's eating, the clacking of its teeth joining, was absumed by a moan. Not from a victim, as he had supposed, but from the killer. Not of pain, but of ravenous yearning. Hesitating, as though invisible hands were holding him in place. The boy turned to Corrin. Please, he said. If a corpse could speak, it would hold more urgency than the nothing in the child's voice. Please. Corrin took the first step after the bend, and then the second more quickly. Stalks atop the gamey form twisted, and flat fish like eyes focused on Corin. A message, nothing like words, but a message as clear as if written in ink, pressed against Corin's mind, emotions being plucked at by sharp fingers. Tear away, churchman, you belong not. Fear. Corin took another step toward the cellar. All along the top of the form, eyes both hanging in stalks or grown from the meat turned on him. A dozen different colors, all flat and dull as though looking at him through water. A handful moved from corn to the boy and back. Compassion. The chains hanging from corn's shackles clicked together as he took the stairs down two at a time. The claws clutched tighter at the father's form, splitting skin with razor edges. The man grunted, but seemed not to care beyond that, as the monster continued to chew on him. If you go, you may claim what you like. No one will know that you were here. Greed. Corrin found a sneer as his foot touched the stone cellar floor. He swayed and almost stumbled as he pushed through air thick as soup. He could feel it, something both less than human and more. The pressure of a headache without the pain. It was inside his mind. You promised, the child murmured, as though he'd forgotten what it was the creature had promised. His hands were fists in once fine cloth. The creature's eyes turned away, focused on its victim. Blood pooled anew atop the clots of the floor, gushing from the father. No more attempts to turn me away, creature? The creature knew it had reached its end. It could not threaten or bribe him, and its twisted form could not hope to defend itself. Did it accept its oncoming death with the same unconcern as the father in its arm? Korn stepped closer to the creature, almost even with the child. Another pressure like piercing the surface of water. A tug inside his head. This time, Corrin did stumble. One hand went to his temple. Something was different. Something was gone. You will end a shell like the child, churchman. A shell. Corrin's mind brought back the flat sound of the child's pleas to him by the church, the lack of fear or urgency. Corrin growled. I'm going to wear your teeth as a necklace and eat your fried eyeballs. Pulling himself even with the child, just beyond the creature's reach, was like pushing through feet of water breathing felt like drowning. With each pull, something new had been torn from him. His pride. His condescension. His anger. This creature ate his emotions the same as it chewed on the dying man. Another step, like pushing through stone. Corrin's chest pulled, but his throat was closed tight another step. The creature's eyes ripped from its current meal, teeth falling slack, claws opening. The half-eaten man slipped from the monster's grasp and slid to the floor with a fleshy slap. It had taken Corrin years, as a child, to realize that he was different, and years more to hide it. He learned to practice in a mirror, to let his cheeks pull his lips into a smile like the other children's, rather than pushing the corner of his lips up as he at first had. How to breathe just so as he laughed, so it rose and fell just like everyone else's. He'd learned what touches were welcomed and what made other children cry. Mimicking the other pages had felt like taking up the habits of the high canter's hound. But it was useful. It let his real self observe and plan. As long as he displayed compassion and fear, the church had no issue with his ambition or his pride. He practiced hard, volunteered to tell the stories, and in time, he applied to become a lance. Taum, with her observance and her logic. Taum, who gave meals to the poor and cried at strangers' funerals. Taum would have been scraped hollow like the boy. Would have stood still and waited to be eaten. Another step but Corin had been hollow long before he'd ever come to this cellar. The creature flung out its great arm. The blade cleaved through its gristle and bone. The claws clattered against the stones. The teeth curled out like a hundred lances, but the blade plunged deep into the gaping maw, without Corin drawing close enough to be bitten. The giant form writhed and lurched, but the long tendons tied the creature to the meat pit from which it had crawled. It died quickly. As something darker than the clotted blood poured from the open mouth of the monster, the dying father and his child started to scream. Wiping blood from his fingers, Korin stepped over the charred corpses and into the burned out church The hard part of making the necklace hadn't been ripping out the teeth. Getting a closer look at the creature, in better light, had proved fascination. And it hadn't been making holes at their base, though his blade was clumsy and split more than one. When applied carefully, it pierced the teeth quite easily. No, the hardest part had been finding a suitable string, Ash rained from ruined rafters, and burst up from below his feet. Even some time later, the air was thick with singed hair, and scorched flesh, and burned wood. Ahead, haloed by sunlight through the collapsed roof, the anchor gleamed amid the puddle of the chain god's ichor. Corn smiled. How many lances could say they hadn't died on their journey to a fallen land? How many could say they'd never even needed to drink from the flask? It seemed that his god had sent the right person to Marath's End after all. I was Corin, standing in the burned-out church of Marath's End. I floated in memory, syrupy and cloying. Above was the light, above was air, above was myself, but each moment submerged in the vision scraped away at who I was. My own life felt like someone else's memory, the life I'd lived as corn was real. Even as I sat suspended in his memory, it grew more solid, and the world above grew further away. With desperation, I pushed toward my sense of self. Slowly, torturously, I rose from the depths into sunlight. I was Corin, smug with my own cleverness, awash with my own accomplishments. I was myself, and I was violently ill. This has been Chapter 9 of An Altar on the Village Green, from Book 1 of The Chained God. Edited by Sarah Chorn. Original print cover by Luke Tarzian. And podcast cover by Van Fulfs. Copyright 2021 by Nathan Hall. All rights reserved.